You know what I mean? Like, I think going into it, be really clear that entrepreneurship is not all upside. It's not all thrills. And you want to make sure that you're confident that you're filling a gap in the marketplace. You're educated on how to run a business and you're willing to be a grinder because you're going to grind it out. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen. So let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I interviewed Mike Casey, who's the president and founder of TigerCom in this episode. TigerCom is the top Murcom and public relations firm in clean energy in the U.S. The company has been around for 14 years serving over 170 clients. They were chosen as a valued strategic partner to help mid to large size clean energy companies win with customers, investors, and policymakers. Some of their clients include Trina Solar, Renew Financial, Apex Clean Energy, and SIA. They provide many different services. Here are some of them, uh, digital media and advertising, thought leadership, communication and planning, media relations, and attention generation and clean energy marketing. For 30 years, Mike has focused on the design, staffing, and strategies for winning communication programs. As TigerCom's founder, he counsels clean tech executives, investors, and philanthropists on strategies for meeting their business objectives. Mike is a top U.S. innovator and strategist on clean tech marketing and communications. He has presented at more than a dozen major conferences, and he writes frequently on clean economy topics at Scaling Clean and Renewable Energy World. Mike has trained more than 2,000 people on interview techniques, message development, and public relations management. Before TigerCom, he built winning communications programs for the National Environment Environmental Trust and the Environmental Working Group. I learned a lot speaking to Mike on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy it. Some of the interesting topics that he talked about is the clean energy marketing paradox and how clean energy marketing has changed during COVID. He also talks about a presentation that they gave at SPI back in September. It's called The Great Solar Migration, How Stronger Brands Can Help Solar Move Out from Under Commoditization. And also he spoke about a quarterly clean tech editors roundtable where these editors talk about different trends that they're seeing in the industry, which is really helpful if you haven't listened to it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Solar Maverick podcast and thank you for listening. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm really excited to have Mike Casey. He's the CEO and founder of TigerCom. TigerCom is one of the leading PR firms in the clean tech industry. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Right, thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. Yeah, it's definitely going to be fun. And I think you could bring a really great perspective to our listeners who we call Mavericks in a lot of different ways. And I'm excited to interview you. Thank you for your time today. My pleasure. In the beginning, we talked a little bit about TigerCom, but it would be great to learn more about your company and what made you found it. And also, I know this is multiple questions, but what made you passionate about clean energy? I mean, you know, just from my brief experience with you, I love the passion that you have for the industry and it really, you know, comes off in all your interactions. So thanks. Well, I'll wake up out of my nap now and start talking. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, in no particular order, I can answer those questions with a succinct under 30 second answer. The first textbook I read and the first college course I took in 1982 talked about how humanity was living unsustainably on the planet. And I decided I want to do something about that. Wasn't quite sure what form that would take. Spent 10 years in politics learning the intersection of policy and media. 
went into the environmental community where I spent 12 years realizing three things. First, we were trying to beat something with nothing. We didn't have an alternative to what we were opposed to. Second, we had an infrastructure gap relative to the polluting guys. And the third is we had a skills and attitude gap. We were infected with what I call the disease of principled loserism. We didn't mind losing as long as we felt we were right. I don't like losing and I don't think the planet has time for clean economy to lose out to incumbents or to have to be slowed down in the process of transitioning this economy to more sustainable footing. So started the firm. The firm was designed to address those three gaps. We've been around for 15 years. We proudly and confidently say we are the top Marcom and public affairs firm servicing the clean economy in the United States. And our client list historically is 140 companies and organizations and growing. We've represented almost all the big names at one point or another in the space and we continue to do that. So we are now into solar, wind, battery storage, pace financing, and the tech around clean energy distribution. So you really, compared to most people, have a huge breadth of the clean energy market and see trends and obviously things that are happening in the future more clearly than other people because you're intertwined within the clean energy economy, which is really an interesting perspective that we've actually never had on the podcast. So that's amazing. I know you mentioned about what types of clients, but can you talk about also like qualities of clients? What sort of qualities that you look for with clients that you work for? I know you said you worked for over 140 companies and I'm sure you're pretty exclusive with who you would want to work for. Can you talk about like the qualities that you're looking for when determining like an ideal client for you? Yeah, I think there are several main qualities we're looking for, but I think the initial gating requirement for us is compliance with what I call our 3D rule. No drama, no dysfunction, no dishonesty. In essence, it's the no asshole rule. So if you're a yeller, if you're a screamer, if you're an Elon Musk, we're not working for you because I'm just not putting up with your nonsense. Life is too short. I'm in my mid-50s. I buried enough friends to know that life is short. And that inflection happened around when I was 50 years old. You know, five, six years ago, I realized, hey, you know, it actually, our impact in the world and our ability to bring our skills to bear for the people who pay us to do that increases if we look for stylistic and attitudinal fits. And we're not that picky, except you have to be appreciably moving the needle on sustainability. Two, we do not provide execution-only services. We are a strategy and execution shop. So if you've got your plan figured out, you are going to find less expensive alternatives to just hand assignments to. We provide execution off well-designed, strategically focused plans that we've been contributing to to help the client define its path from point A, where it is, to point B, to where it should go. Apart from that, we're open. That's great and that's huge because I feel like being in a service business, sometimes people take on you know any client that's interested in working for them. So that's great that you have that and you're able to build the business even more because you're strategically on the same philosophies of doing business. So I think that's huge. That's amazing. Can you talk about some of like the service that you provide or kind of go into detail about that. You talk in very general, but it would be great to dive deeper and understand what are the different things that you do for your clients. The list of services that we don't provide is much shorter than the services that we do provide. So we're essentially a full service agency. They're compared to, I think, our closest competitor, which is Edelman, they're literally 200 times our size. So we're 15 people all around the country. There's 3,600 people all over the world. Mm-hmm. But the differences between an Edelman, an APCO, a Weber, Shamwick, a Fleischmann, Hillary, these big globals are several full. First, the PR industry has traditionally made a good chunk of its money off three lies. One of them is, I will come in and pitch you, but if you hire us, you don't get me. I'm long gone. You're going to hand it off to Junior Joe employee. Mm-hmm. 
called bait and switch on service level. And I'm just resolutely opposed to it. We are assiduously accurate about who a client will be working with. Number two, we do not stray much outside of the clean economy. We've done some off-mission work. It's built some skills. We will still do that, but the only way we'll do that is if we're going to learn valuable things that we can bring back to our clean economy clients because the story of the clean economy is accelerating momentum, dwindling time, and we just don't have a lot of time to take our eye off the ball, moving things from an unsustainable footing to a sustainable footing. And if some of your listeners are people who are institutional communicators that want to employ PR firms, here are three things to watch out for so you don't get ripped off because you can get your pocket picked by PR firms very easily. And these three things are one, make sure that you know who's actually going to work on your account. PR firms make a lot of their money through bait and switch. It's a classic way to make a lot of money. I'm not saying all of them do. I'm saying many of them do. Second, pay attention to what they're doing for your competitors. I don't mean if you're Sunrun, pay attention to what a firm is doing perhaps for Tesla and you know SolarCity's new owner. I'm talking about the globals who in order to make their overhead cannot live off clean economy revenues alone. They will be working for sectors that are actively trying to undermine clean economy progress. Now, these firms will tell them, they will tell the client, hey, we're firewalled. We never trash anybody, all of the above. Let me tell you, that's just a pile of horse shit. It's complete horse shit. Someone always at large firms straddles the firewall. They can't run any other way. And the second is these firms are getting paid by incumbent sectors to actively undermine clean economy sectors if they're out pitching for business because I've seen it over and over and over again. And no amount of gloss can change the color of that stain on the wall. Just can't. That's amazing perspective. Absolutely. And the third thing is you should be really clear. Do you have execution jobs you need done because they exceed your internal capacity? Or do you need strategic guidance to figure out what the work plan is that you will then have that shop or another shop execute for you? And a lot of PR firms make money bamboozling clients on activity when they should be getting results. So these are the three big lies that get told by often the larger firms, what we call horizontally positioned. They're positioned across a lot of sectors. We are vertically positioned on clean economy. This is all we do. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, can you talk about some of the stuff that you focus on with your clients? I know you said like the services that you provide are a lot more than services you don't provide, but can you give like maybe examples like just for our audience to get a better idea? Obviously, you mentioned and PR and you do strategy. This probably goes a little bit astray, but it provides important context and perhaps some value add for your listeners. 30 years ago when I was starting off, I don't know if you've able to see this dry erase board. Let's just try this here. You can stop me if it's too opaque. But sure. PR, marketing and advertising, these were three relatively distinct disciplines. Yes. What the internet has done is essentially converged them in a zone that is largely about content and search. Not exclusively. There are still some things that are mostly the domain of marketing firms or marketing professionals. There are many things that are still the domain of advertising firms. But the convergence is what's important because it has democratized the spectrum of professionals that can work at this intersection of content and 
search. And that's where we live. Mostly what we're doing for firms is helping them figure out most important outcome they're trying to support for the business, who is going to give it to them in terms of the audience, what we need to say about the company and executive or the product to get to that audience. And then we design the plan for how this client company can be attention worthy enough to secure the interests of that audience in what they have to say. And then we run the play. That will often take the form of some combination of digital media, social, web content, etc., and traditional legacy media, be it trades or business media. And then there's a bunch of things that get brought along with that. Speech writing, digital ads, Sure. mobile billboards. It really runs the gamut. But the core where corporate communications is now happening is really at this intersection. That is really interesting. I mean, that's a great way to kind of summarize what your business does. And then, I mean, as you mentioned, you only focus on the clean economy. And obviously, there's so many unique nuances that are related to that. And then you're able to add value to your clients because of that you know, industry expertise and the wide range of companies that you work for, which is really interesting because it's a kind of a segue as well. You've mentioned before about the clean energy marketing paradox, which I thought was really like interesting. Can you talk more about that? Sure um, can. Yeah. The clean economy marketing paradox is the gap between the brilliance of our client companies, product offerings, the engineering behind it, the executive teams that need to pull that off, the sheer courage to start clean economy companies that are often going to disrupt very powerful incumbent players and to go for it. It requires really remarkable people to do that. And it's one of the pleasures in my and my colleagues' work lives is to work around and for such people. It's really magnificent humans on almost all cases. And yet, despite that brilliance, there is an over-reliance on legacy marketing. In essence, most of our client prospects are suffering from the problem of putting too much of early stage customer decision-making on the backs of their sales staff. When the marketing literature in academia is showing increasingly that more and more of that early stage purchase decision is being made by customers, whether they're B2B or B2C, it's being made through online search and content. Sure. before those customer prospects will take or make contact with the seller. So the challenge with the legacy approach is that you're putting the burden of early stage customer education on people who are being disqualified by customer information consumption habits from getting to the customer. It results in what we call the sixth email problem. Let's say that you're a prospect of mine. I know that only 3% of my prospects at any given time are ready to buy our services. 97% are not, and yet I need to stay engaged with you. If you're going to do something other than an impulse purchase, get a burger, stop at Caribou or Pete's, Yes. Whether you're going to go to Pete's or Starbucks is kind of an impulse purchase. But pretty much anything over that, let's say you're going to figure out how to buy this microphone. What are you going to do when you go shopping for the microphone you're using? What did you do? Internet research before. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And the legacy approach leaves that part of Benoit's purchase decision up for grabs when they're not playing in it, which is kind of crazy because even the all B2B purchases, roughly 60% of them on average are being made online through search and content before you have more personalized and tailored conversations with sales staff. Let's say that if you're on high cost, high due diligence, high technical specs products like a wind farm, like EPC 
services and solar, you're not buying those things with a click of a mouse. You're taking your time at several years or definitely many months of consideration. So let's take that 60% number and cut it down to 25. That's still one quarter of the purchase decision that's being made through online searching content. And most of our client prospects are still having the sales staff tasked with trying to get through. So they meet a prospect at the conference and use the prospect, Benoit. You say, yeah, that's good. We'll trade cards. Yeah, go ahead. Give me a call. So I'll call you and you don't answer. And then I email you. And by the third, fourth, fifth, definitely by the sixth time, I shift from being someone you said you'd talk to, to being an annoyance. That's the sixth email problem. And many, many sales teams have this challenge because of three numbers. The first number is seven. That's the number of seconds that is the upper limit of the average American's attention span. Do you think about that? Seven seconds. Number two is 15,000. That's the number of marketing messages that you as an American are being subject to on a daily basis. And the third number is 5.7. That's the number of hours a day pre-pandemic that you as an average American were spending on screens. What that equates to is attention scarcity driven by time poverty. And we therefore have to have our value proposition crisp and right up front. And that speaks to you in a way that sticks in your mind. Yeah, I mean, that is so true. And I really appreciate you explaining. There's so much value from what you talked about. And it's interesting too, because you mentioned obviously pre-COVID, but I feel like during COVID or post-COVID, everything has completely changed. And it's more based on what you were saying, the intersection of basically PR marketing and advertising. Yeah, more time spent at that intersection. Yeah. Can you go a little bit into like how I guess you have adapted your business to help your clients during COVID? Obviously, it sounds like you've been an early adopter of marketing and PR and advertising the right way, you know, for our customers' habits or potential customers' habits. Can you go a little bit into that as well? Well, I think your question perhaps could best be framed as how has our business changed with the pandemic? And the short answer is twofold. First, I'm not on planes and that's a godsend because I never like getting on that anyway. Not at the pace I was at. You know, I don't mind a little travel, but business travel wears on all but the hardiest among us. <laughs> yes, and I agree. So now I'm prospecting through this platform that we're on as opposed to in-person meetings. The second thing is it has dramatically expanded the opportunity for in insightful content to break through to people because people have a longer and more interrupted work day. The start and end time of their work has expanded to almost consume all waking hours with lots of interruptions for children and dogs and repair work on the house, et cetera, et cetera. That allows me to focus more on producing content that tells you as a prospect something useful and interesting about you that you didn't know before. Drawn from my expertise, speaking to your interests, that is in insightful and useful. That's the difference between content, which the internet is awash in, and insight, which the internet is relatively scarce on. Definitely. That's a great point. And how do you suggest to make insightful content? You know, that's something that's not easy to do, right? And there's a lot of content out there, as you said, that's just a waste of time. Yeah, it's it's a lot of pablum and box checking. I think everybody has to find their way, their own way from content to insight. But for me, the bar is really clear. Am I going to get or can I get a friend in the sector we're talking to to respond to me with a high five on our pilot piece of content? 
For example, we're going to be coming out very shortly with a very deep groundbreaking analysis on micromobility space. And we got feedback in advance from the heads of the corporate communications efforts at the two biggest market players, both of whom said what we had was really insightful and they learned something from it. If you can get there, you're in the zone. Hence, what we just talked about on the break, we take a look at those great solar migration slides. No one's ever done that before. So does it break ground and does it say something useful to your prospects? That is really insightful. Can you talk about the, I thought it was really interesting, like the great solar migration. Absolutely. This is drawn from a talk that is now posted at North American Smart Energy Week, which I think is misnamed. It should be North American Smart Energy Six Weeks. Yes. (laughs) But we are essentially trying to tackle, put our arms around the discussion within the industry, which is intermittent and low key about what are we going to do about commoditization pressure? Most people in the sector form a zeitgeist of opinion that commoditization, that is sameness in product offering, has been very helpful in reaching scale and cost predictability within the industry. And it's been driven by heavy subsidization by Chinese taxpayers for Chinese solar panel makers. And it is what it is. And I think people can criticize that from a trade perspective in our country. But the fact is, enormous percentage of the global panel making is done in China. So we went and looked at the 13 top solar panel makers and how they are expressing themselves out in the marketplace. This included Chinese companies. It also included companies that are headquartered in other countries, including ours. And we said, how are you expressing yourself in the marketplace? Well, the two places we chose to look were among the briefest ways that a company expresses its essence into its market and its customers. First is the About Us section on the website. And the second is in their taglines, because for us, the tagline is the most condensed expression of brand. And what we found in the slide, which I encourage you to make available to your listeners, What we found is that all 13 original equipment makers, OEMs, are selling themselves to the market on some subset of the same seven claims. No one's doing all seven claims. Many are doing most of those seven. And we are unintentionally fueling brand similarity, hence the diminution in brand. And one thing we can tell about mature sectors is that they try to expand market share by several strategies, one of which is having greater brand distinction. In the auto industry is a great example. This is a highly mature sector. We've been driving cars for over 100 years in this country. And then the question is, what's the difference between a Ford F-150 and a Rivian electric truck? Sure. Pretty big difference. Tesla, I think, has really blazed a trail for a brand distinction and has become almost a celebrity brand because they've mastered this so well. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting how Tesla has been able to market itself and, you know, people know the brand. And if you look at it from a spend perspective relating to their marketing and advertising compared to like the automakers that have been around for a very long time, it's a lot less than what they're spending, but they're able to have that customer loyalty and excitement, you know, when they release, which is pretty interesting. One of the things I wanted to ask you, being a thought leader, can you talk about how to become a thought leader, like suggestions that you might have for our audience? It's something that, you know, I think about a lot as being a podcaster for the solar industry. It would be great to get your perspective. I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question, and there are almost as many parts to the answer to that question if one wants to be complete. I think for your listeners, I'll offer a few tenants, and that's about as best I can do here in a compact format. One of them is really take in what Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin Industries, said. Any fool can complicate something. It takes a master to simplify it. Can you bring mastery in the form of simplification to the area of the economy in which you are working and in which you are problem 
problem solving. Number two, do you have enough internal insight to be able to communicate externally to your prospects things that are of use and they didn't know before? Mm -hmm. Clearing the bar from content to insight. I think if you can do those two things, you are set up to figure out the right pacing of content output for you. This episode of the Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Podcast Laundry, the podcast concierge service that I use to make sure that my listeners hear the best quality show. They do the dirty work of podcasting for me. Yes, graphics, quotes, show notes, master editing, and much more. All I have to do is record. So if you're a busy podcaster like me with an engaged audience and want to free up time to do more of what you'd love to do, like going to the gym or spending time with loved ones, go to podcastlaundry.com to schedule your consultation or call 347 8273. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. That's really helpful to understand that. Switching it up a little bit, you obviously started TigerCom, I guess, 15 years ago or 16 years ago. What made you become an entrepreneur and what suggestions do you have for someone who's looking to get into entrepreneurship? We're seeing during the pandemic, a lot of people wanting to get involved in entrepreneurship or their job status has changed and they want to do something entrepreneurial. Our podcast is about entrepreneurship as well. So it'd be great to get your perspective. I know you talked a little bit about what made you found the company, but it'd be great to get more of your perspective on entrepreneurship. I think your listeners will find a few tips and questions from me to them more useful than my own journey. My own journey was born of a real passion for a world problem and deductively getting to the way in which I thought I could most effectively impact that which I cared about. And it just so happened that it was through starting a firm because no other like it existed. That said, here are my suggestions born of the mistakes I made. First, if you have not run your own business before, don't start it and then learn how to run your own business. Do some reading about the art and science of starting and running your own business. I was a dummy. I didn't do that until year eight. And how stupid of me. I mean, the mistakes that I made, the revenue that we lost, the prices we paid we didn't need to because I was determinedly ignorant. It's unnecessary. And people can stand on my shoulders and avoid at least that mistake. I would recommend reading a book called The E-Myth Revisited. I believe the author's name is Michael Gerber. And he has a fundamental distinction, which I think is very important to appreciate. He uses the example of a plumber who starts his or her own plumbing business. The plumber is working for a plumbing business and after several years starts saying, why am I getting paid $25 an hour when they're charging $150 an hour for my time? That's silly. Rather than making my boss rich, I'll just become a plumber myself. And that's fine if you're going to be a one-person shop. But the minute you bring another person into the company, you then encounter, knowingly or not, the demand that you begin to lessen your time working working in the business and grow your time working on the business. And this I found is important, but it has some real limits because if you're going to become a plumber, there are pre-established practices for how modern plumbing businesses do well and here's what you do, etc. But for a business like mine, we are hindered by two things. First, we are working for disruptors by definition. And second, I love to wear the tool belt. So I think clients like it because I'm not going to bait and switch them. I am at any given time of the year, I'm intensely involved 
involved in several of our accounts and are touching or working in many or almost all. Almost no accounts happen here without me being involved. To the extent that I'm part of the draw, we will do truth and advertising about how much time I'm focused in. But from my own perspective, the more account work I do, the less work I do on the business. And so at some point when people like me grow up, they don't do account work anymore. They keep the vision for the business. So I think far smarter people than me have written books about successful entrepreneurship and I'm not the model for you. All I can tell you is I've got some stars on my knees from the stumbles that I've had and I would encourage people listening to this who are thinking about making the leap. Before you do that, educate yourself on what it's like to run a business because it is a thrilling loneliness to be at the top of a small growing business because when everybody else leaves, there's still something to be done. You're doing it. There's no delegating. There's nobody else who's minding the store and no one will be ever invested as you are in the business of success. So you're going to be the backstop. In the early stage, you'll be the backstop, the janitor, the accounts payable, etc. That sounds glorious, but really, particularly if you have kids, it sucks because the time poverty is insane. And I think the last recommendation I would make is make sure that you have a really good set of disciplined practices around separation from work and life because it's very easy for entrepreneurs, particularly parents, to get in what I call the night shift habit. That sort of time pre-COVID between six and eight, you never get it back. So if you're sitting there clacking away laptops or pacing out in the back deck with on phones and calls to the West Coast, you will never get that family dinner back and you'll regret it. I speak from experience. So what happens is you come in at six o'clock, you put the phone down, you turn it off, you have an ongoing message that says, I'm gone for the next two hours. And then at eight o'clock, the kids go to bed and you pick up and you start working them and boom, you look up and it's 1 a.m. And then you're going to get six hours of sleep because you got to call the next morning early. You know what I mean? Like I think going into it, be really clear that entrepreneurship is not all upside. It's not all thrills. And you want to make sure that you're confident that you're filling a gap in the marketplace, you're educated on how to run a business, and you're willing to be a grinder because you're going to grind it out. Yeah, I think those are all great suggestions, Mike. And I've read the book, e Myth Revisited, which is a great suggestion. So thank you for recommending. We'll have a link to it. Yeah. Uh, so I think Bo- those- Borderline must read. I could kick myself in the butt for not reading that ahead of time. Yeah, it's really a great book and really kind of helped me understand, you know, how to kind of think through things. So that's really helpful. And your suggestions, obviously, I think are great. Can you talk about your Clean Editors Roundtable? I think you did the second edition yeah. recently. Yeah, this is super thrilling. We're having, I mean, despite all the qualifications of my last answer, I want to be clear. I love what I do. I say on my LinkedIn page, I think I might be the luckiest person on LinkedIn. And I really think that because I get to work for and around these incredibly smart people, gutsy people, technologically deep, real Renaissance men and women. And it's thrilling. And then our staff here, because we have a no asshole policy on the 3D rule, we have really high retention rates here at the firm. Like in our marker, BVP has been with us for 13 years, 14, I think we're almost 14 years. Yeah. Our average tenure here is five years at least. The average in the industry wide, it's two and a half. So it's a very team oriented environment. And that's awesome too. Perhaps the newest and most fun thing that's really been added to my work life is because we've established ourselves as really camped out at the very head of the marching band, we are now able to convene some really interesting groups of people. And we, in April, brought together the editors of six multi-sector clean economy news sites. And we put them together 
together on a Zoom call. We had 200 people register, 100 people stuck on for the whole thing. And these are folks who get hitched all the time. Their job is to periscope up and watch trends in various sectors. And it would take a Darius Snickers. It's recharge, it's wind, and then some. Jan Brandt is solar, and then some. But Heather Clancy with GreenBiz is multi-sector. And so you have people in varying levels of breath get on. And the way they match notes, you could just see these very smart, super positioned people who have really interesting vantage points match notes of what their sense of the trends are. It was so popular and the editors liked it that we brought it back a week and a half ago for episode two. We're going to do episode three sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it's just really fun. So it's kind of the hood ornament on this really fun car that we get to drive around because we have really an unrivaled network in the space. That sounds amazing. And obviously they're all great contributors to the industry. Can you talk about maybe some of like the trends or predictions that they might have talked about in clean energy or global sustainability, or maybe even thoughts that you have as well of what you're seeing going forward? We asked this question and I will not do contributions justice. So I would encourage everybody to listen to what they had to say because these are some very smart people. If people are interested in that, how do they get involved or is that like a... By the time you listen to this, it may be the second entry down. But if you go to our blog, if you search Scaling Clean Tigercom with two M's, you'll get to our blog, first entry, and then just look down. You'll see Clean Tech Editors Roundtable Episode 2. And I would encourage you to click on that. I'll send you the URL. You can put that in the show notes. What was really interesting was their prediction about how clean economy would emerge from the pandemic and recession and what practices in American society would lend itself to a successful exit out of this very challenging time. Beyond that, I will not remember who made what really smart points, but I think that was one of the most interesting parts of the discussion. I think that's great. People could check it out. We'll obviously have the link in the show notes so that people could listen to. Did you want to also as well talk about the Forbes article that you wrote? I think that's pretty sure. interesting Like to provide content to the listeners about that. And we'll have a link to the Forbes article as well if you want Absolutely. to talk about it. I recently penned a piece with which got a fair amount of pass around, I think, in our LinkedIn circles. But essentially, it's pointing out that while the major clean economy trade associations were rightly focused on getting the very modest tax credits for wind and solar into these large stimulus bills, a bad thing happened. And we really got lucky that it didn't hit us hard. And it was this film by Michael Moore called Planet of the Humans, in which Michael Moore, he actually, I think, financially backed this film and was an executive producer, but he wasn't the director. But he had his hands on it. And essentially these things, it's a train wreck in a hot dumpster fire. Like it's just a complete mess. It's what I call the smart guy's disease. One of the downsides in clean green circles, mostly green NGO thinking, is people who show up and think that they're the smartest people in the room and they got to bend over backwards to make sure that you know they're the smartest people in the room. So they say stuff that's flashy and contrarian, but it's also indicative of a dumb shit. And Michael Moore (laughs) is exhibit A on this thing. Wrong, 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 wrong. And smarter people and I did a takedown on this film, but essentially I'm making the case. This is a film that got 9 million views. As of this conversation, he's got plus 9 million views. And our response from the associations who are charged with largely defending the commercial and reputational momentum of clean economy sectors was almost a whisper. 
I note, and I want to note now as well, they had another really important urgent priority and they were 100% focused on that and their priorities were correct. What I'm making the case for is we do not have standing crisis communications capacity to defend these sectors from broadsides like this film. In a piece that's going to be coming up that's a companion piece, I go back in time and note a history of these big, major, ugly broadsides that hit us that actually have significant policy and commercial impact on these sectors. And that is not an accident. That is a cause of smart issue management to term in our line of work for long-term threat exacerbation or threat mitigation by depotted incumbent players. Sure. And I think there's a pattern here and we keep being unready because we don't fund infrastructure. We engage in a fair amount of magical thinking and we're too short-term focused in the way that we fund our own public case making. That's so huge. I think you mentioned this as well. Like most people are looking what they could get from their lobbying groups, meaning like the solar, wind, energy lobbying groups, but not really how we could collectively impact and make change, which I think you referred to in the other podcasts that I've heard in the past, which is pretty interesting because obviously, you know, certain types of gas or coal lobbyists have a lot of, you know, financial backing and special interests controlled based on the lobbying impact that they have. And I think we're still as an industry trying to figure that out. I think we're getting a lot better at it, but it seems like there's still a long way to go. Well, I think we are getting a lot better at it and we're getting a lot better starting from being really poor. You know, three is a lot more than zero, but it's not nearly 10. And I think what we have to understand as a set of clean economy sectors, some clean economy sectors are actually their own industries, micromobility. Some clean economy sectors are just a sector, a new sector within an existing industry. EVs, the Rivians of the world, the canoes of the world, these are disrupting major incumbent players. And who knows how serious the executive team Ford is about an electric vehicle fleet future. But if you've got the number one best-selling vehicle in America for 30 years, the F-150, you have every incentive not to change a winning game, but you have every incentive to fetter somebody's disruption of that game. So just port that over to the power sector. If you're the natural gas industry, you have no interest whatsoever in scaling solar and scaling wind because they're going to take market share from you. So unless your company is going to go, ah, you know what, we're going to walk away from a trillion dollars collectively or several trillion dollars collectively in infrastructure that we take decades to build up and we're going to treat them as walk away, just write it off stranded assets and we're going to join the renewables bandwagon. What are you going to do? You're going to take several decades of mastery over weaponizing propaganda and influence peddling to undercut the guys who are going to take market share from you. If you and I were in the gas industry, that's true. wouldn't we do that? We do, we do the same thing. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we'd be stupid not to. Yes. So one can inject morality into that, but I don't think it's necessary. The challenge I've been a consistent voice for is to confront politely our beloved clean economy sector and say, you are not a new industry. You're a new sector and you're disruptors. And market disruption is a full contact game. It is played with pads on and people hit each other. So if you don't want to get hit, stay up in the stands. (laughs) If you want to win, don't come out dressed in a t-shirt because you're going to get really hurt. And I have seen time and time again, a really serious impact by particularly companies that are locally regulated and they get hammered. In fact, I don't know if you have the ability to display visuals during this, but I'm going to suggest at this point that your editor put up something we have in several of our pieces called the clean economy mistake path. And we chart the collective step down from fat
vast momentum into near-death experiences because companies and sectors are under-investing in their public affairs future despite the fact that they're exposed to local regulations and the whims of local regulators. Yeah, that's a huge point. And I think that's like something that's you know been an issue for some time. And I don't think companies appreciate how much it's an investment to put you know money into public affairs. They think of it more as a cost center in a sense. It's more to enable opportunities as well. So I think that's great. It's a growth protection center, not a cost center. You yeah. see it as a cost center. And then what happens is you think small ball and you're always rating it and you never want to invest and you're doing it grudgingly and you assign the staffer to go sit on the association board. <laughs> yeah. And then you run around for the next, you know, five years complaining that your association's not doing enough for you. You know, it's a little bit of a, my dad used to joke, it's kind of a marine attitude. The beatings will continue until the morale improves. And it's just like, I'm not saying associations are perfect and that our associations are perfect, but I tell my kids, if you bite your tongue, do not complain there's blood in your mouth. Yeah. If you underfund your own future, don't whine that your future didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. Take control or leave it up to the market gods and suffer the consequences. That is uh, great insights. And this is a totally separate question. I know like jujitsu has been a large part of your life. Can you talk about how that's impacted you and what made you interested in the sport? I know you've also competitively done jiu-jitsu as well, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So thanks for asking. It remains a big part of my life. And I joke that I have a life and a half. You know, my secret half-life is that I'm a really avid Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. I guess I'm on a hiatus right now while my kids are in high school on competing. But my plan is once my boy leaves the house in three years, I'm going to go back to competing internationally. But I was drawn to jiu-jitsu for the reason that I stay in jiu-jitsu because it's one, it's highly addictive. Two, it is when you stay with it, even six months, it begins to get a mindset, which is to combine high proactivity with strategy, with what we call gameness. You know, it's an old saying, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. But sort of take this out of like combative language and just put it into more practical terms. Jiu-Jitsu is great ongoing training for solving thorny problems. And what we know for your listeners who are thinking about starting businesses, if you face a problem, the odds are, that your problem is cumulative and multi-source. And we call it rolling. When you're sparring, we call it rolling in jiu-jitsu. Very often, you get in compromised positions that looks like you're going to lose, you're going to have to tap out, you're going to get submitted, which means you're going to get choked or joint locked. And there's very seldom can you make one move and get out. Often, it's very gradual unwinding of your problem and advancing to a better position. And jiu-jitsu gives you calm, it gives you problem-solving ability, and it teaches you that you are never done until the match is over. To me, it's pretty impressive that you do jiu-jitsu. I mean, I've done it several times and it's one of the best workouts that I've ever done in my life. And that's just amazing that you've been able to keep up with it. And I think you're a three-time gold Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion. And that's amazing that you're still planning to compete. Yeah, I'll be an old geezer at 60, but you know, there's, we'll yeah. see how many 60-year-olds out there to, <laughs> to roll against. Yeah. yeah, seriously. I think in most tournaments, I'll be knocked to the 40 and up category, but I don't care. As well, like the competitive fire that it sounds like that you have, which is great. And to keep that going because, you you know, like when you're in school, you're used to playing sports, then it's great that you're continuing with a passion of yours, I could tell, for a long time. So that's pretty amazing. This has been an amazing interview. There's been a lot of great, you know, insights. Mike, I appreciate you being on the podcast. If our listeners wanted to learn more about TigerCom or connect with you, what's like the best way, which we'll also have in the notes as well of the podcast? Sure. They can contact us through our website, which is TigerCom with two M's dot US, or they can find me on LinkedIn and that's Mike Casey underscore TigerCom. Thank you again, Mike, for being on the podcast. I think there are a lot of great insights that you provided. And I think our listeners will find this extremely valuable. So I really appreciate your time and thank you. Benoit, thanks. I'm flattered to be on. It was so much fun and I wish you well in your podcasting future. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at R-E-N-E-U energy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown.